From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. The Trump folks, you asked how they feel, do see it as something of a gift that the Manhattan DA case went first because they think that it is the most trivial of the cases. They like to say weak. I don't actually think it is a weak case. The question is whether people think that it should have been brought. That's Maggie Haberman. She's a senior political correspondent at The New York Times, where she won a Pulitzer Prize for her reporting on Donald Trump's top advisors and their connections to Russia. She's written about the former president for decades, reporting extensively on him since 2016. Over the last couple of weeks on this podcast, we have focused on the legal implications of Trump's indictment in Manhattan. So I wanted to speak with Maggie about the political impact. How might the charges play out in the GOP presidential primary? How is the White House responding? And how is Trump personally handling all of this? That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in a tweet from Leon. Do you think the Trump stolen documents case will result in indictments soon? So that's a great question. I like the way you have asked the question super neutrally, the Trump stolen documents case. You're, of course, Leon, referring to the investigation that has been taken over by special counsel, Jack Smith at the Justice Department, relating to documents found at Mar-a-Lago, over 100 classified documents. There was a long back and forth, as you may recall, are talking about and from other news reports between Trump, the people around Trump, and the Justice Department and the National Archives. I think the, the signs are there that an indictment is likely and probably not too far off. That's in part because it's not that complicated a case. There are not that many witnesses you have to bring to bear in the grand jury. There are not that many documents you have to deal with. The theory of the case is rather simple. I think the reporting and the information we have otherwise indicates that it's not likely to be a prosecution, if there is one, based on the mishandling of classified documents per se, but rather the narrative that's being developed by Jack Smith through putting people in the grand jury and otherwise is that Donald Trump intentionally obstructed an investigation about the documents. So it's an obstruction charge, probably, not a mishandling of classified documents charge. No case is simple and no case is fully straightforward. But of the four things that Donald Trump is facing, prosecution in Manhattan, prosecution in Georgia, 
the investigation that Jack Smith is also doing relating to the events of January 6th and this Mar-a-Lago documents matter, the Mar-a-Lago documents matter is probably the simplest and most straightforward and the least sprawling. The other signs that an indictment is likely to happen is the speed with which Jack Smith seems to be proceeding in the aggressiveness with which he seems to be proceeding. There's significant reporting from the Washington Post, from great reporters there in the last 10 days or so, that talks about all the new pieces of evidence that Jack Smith seems to have, including video evidence. This bit of reporting is, is pretty astonishing. Let me, let me quote from the Washington Post article for a moment. Quote, in the classified documents case, federal investigators have gathered new and significant evidence that after the subpoena was delivered, remember, a subpoena went to Donald Trump after it was certified that all the documents had been turned over. So after the subpoena was delivered, according to the Washington Post, Trump looked through the contents of some of the boxes of documents in his home, apparently out of a desire to keep certain things in his possession, the people familiar with the investigation said. Let me read further. Investigators now suspect, based on witness statements, security camera footage, and other documentary evidence, that boxes including classified material were moved from a Mar-a-Lago storage area after the subpoena was served, and that Trump personally examined at least some of those boxes, these people said. The Post some months earlier reported that Trump's valet told investigators that he moved boxes at Mar-a-Lago at the former president's instruction after the subpoena was issued. So you have multiple examples, according to this reporting, if it can be believed, but it's credible, that Donald Trump himself, himself, looked at documents, sifted through documents, tried to keep documents, ordered other people to move documents. The fact that all this is being leaked and being discovered by the press and the nature of the case as a general matter caused me to cautiously predict that there will be an indictment, notwithstanding the fact that there's also an investigation going on with respect to classified documents found at facilities that were being used by former Vice President Joe Biden and former Vice President Mike Pence. I'll be right back with my conversation with Maggie Haberman. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then passed those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com preet. That's mintmobile.com preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform 
that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. What is Donald Trump's next move after being indicted by the Manhattan DA? There isn't a reporter around who knows the former reality TV star and president better than senior New York Times political correspondent Maggie Haberman. Maggie Haberman, welcome back to the show. Preet, thanks for having me. It's hard to believe that it's been over five years since you were here back in 2018. That is hard to believe. Did you forget about us? I I, I definitely did not forget about you. Uh, I didn't realize that it had been that long, but you're right. It's kind of crazy. Lots happened since then. Lots happened, and a lot hasn't happened. That's also true. (laughs) That is is also true, and when you put it that way. So I, I want to tell you about a memory I have from the last time we were together on the podcast. So five years and change ago, before the pandemic, the great COVID-19, uh, we were in person. And today uh, you are in a home and I'm in a home, so I can't see you. And so I can't make this observation today, but I made it the last time we were on the podcast together. And you're a busy person. I'm a busy person. And we like to be responsive and we like to be connected And maybe we both, I I would dare to say, have an unhealthy addiction to our phones. Mm. And there have been times when I, and I see other people, uh, in the middle of a conversation, even I dare say in the middle of an interview, I might check my phone. Maybe there's a message from the team. Maybe my family needs to reach me when the other person is speaking. So I might check my phone when I'm listening. I saw you texting during the interview (laughs) while you were speaking. (laughs) (laughs) that i've never seen before in the middle of a podcast interview you picked up your phone listeners wouldn't know it or would have gotten that you were doing that other than your speech got just a little bit slower it's just a mild embarrassed laugh um that i did that but yes i I, i'd like to tell you that it was an isolated incident preet and that you know i learned the texting and speaking i've never that i've never seen well uh it's probably not advisable. Um, I try to do it less than I used to. I think at that period of time when I was on in 2018, I'm trying to remember exactly what month it was, but 2018 was the year that Michael Cohen's office and home were searched by the FBI. And the year when we were reporting after the Wall Street Journal first broke the news about the payment from Cohen to Stormy Daniels, that Cohen acknowledged to me that he had made this payment. And then we had Cohen pleading guilty. And so I feel like there were all kinds of things that might have required my picking up my Required phone. in that moment. Okay. Yes. Well, I'll, I'm going to let that go. We'll come back Thank to you. it. Thank you. Okay. I appreciate it. Let's table it, if you will. We'll now. table yes. it. We'll, cir- we'll circle back, as they circle. say. <laughs> Thank you. Good. Very <laughs> let's, good. Now let's level set. Do these terms that people use that we didn't used to use before. That's so true. I don't even know what level set means, but I hear it all the time. I, I, you know what? It, it could be emotional level setting. It could be technology level setting. Who knows? It could be anything. 
Well, on the podcast level setting means something different. Anyway, so obviously we need to talk about the gigantic news of recent days. We're recording this on Monday, April 10th, in the morning. Donald Trump has been indicted. He has been arraigned. I feel like you know his psychology and the psychology of people around him better than any other reporter. And you've talked a little bit about this. What's what's his mood? What's the mood of the people around him? How are they handling this? So his mood uh, has broken into a couple of different parts. You know, there was the uh, sort of pseudo heady diving in before the actual uh, indictment and almost trying to dare the Manhattan District Attorney to indict him, suggesting that, you know, telling Dare accepted. Right, exactly. (laughs) Yes. Challenge, challenge met. Um, Trying to insist to people around him that he, you know, this was, this was a fun experience. He was excited for a possible perp walk. You know, this was, uh, I think, uh, bravado. Um, You know, this is something that he has sought to avoid for a very long time, which is getting, getting indicted. And with an indictment comes an arrest. So, uh, and Donald Trump, for all of his um, uh, eccentricities, shall we say, and ways in which that he is different from other people, uh, I don't think he's so different that he actually wants to be arrested. Uh, in fact, I'm quite sure of it. So there was that show of bravado until the actual indictment happened. And the indictment caught him and a number of members of his team by surprise, in part because they had convinced themselves that, uh, you know, the, the case was falling apart they believed reports, and then I think in some cases, stuff they were hearing on their own, that the grand jury that had been sitting and hearing the case was adjourned for a month. That obviously turned out not to be true. So all of that then leads into the actual arraignment day slash arrest. And, you know, he was not throwing staplers or, or furniture or what have you, but uh, he was very angry about the indictment. He did not want to be arrested. The look on his face, Preet, when he went into the courtroom, and, you know, the, the image has now been seen all over the place, said it all. And what was interesting is in the courtroom, when he was sitting at the defense table, and he was flanked by lawyers, and one camera was, I think it was just one, camera was allowed into the courtroom to take what I think was a pool shot. And Trump apparently locked eyes on that camera, on the lens. He knew what he wanted to look like in that shot. And this is a guy who, as you know, spends a lot of time thinking about visuals. I think he had put a lot of time into what the, the physicality was going to be of, of this moment. Uh, and, and then how he, would you describe the look? How would you describe the look? Defiant? Uh, resigned, resigned and somewhat defiant. Um, you know, there, there were times that I looked at that photo and I thought he looked pretty tired, honestly. Um, but he was definitely resigned and sort of dug in. And then he went back to Florida and then he was in a great mood and he was making a show of letting everyone see that he was in a great mood because that is what he has done when the chips are down for decades. You know, he shows that he's doing just fine. And so, you know, I think the people around him, um, it was a very, a number of people said to me that Tuesday, that the arrest day last week was very intense. It was exhausting. Uh, They weren't quite sure what to expect. Uh, It was, you know, a little daunting being in that situation with him. And then they felt like they had survived it and got out. Um, and, you know, and then on they go. Now, they believe politically this indictment is going to help them in the Republican primary. It certainly seems to have given Trump at least a short-term boost. I don't know that that will be the case if there are other indictments, but uh, I think that's where they are right now. 
Who is he angry at other than Alvin Bragg? Um, he is angry at, um, <laughs> that's a good question. He is angry at Michael Cohen. He is angry at Stormy Daniels. Um, he is angry at, uh, you know, the press. He is angry at Republicans who are not with him. Um, he is, he is angry. You know, one of the things that I have heard a lot since he left office from people who have spoken to him is that he's quicker to anger. And that makes a lot of sense. And so I think you're seeing some of that right now. I think you've written that, and others have written that he's afraid, he was afraid of this. Yes. What does that mean? And and why is he afraid, given that on so many other occasions, he's avoided accountability under the law? Well, so I would just say a couple of things. There aren't actually that many times prior to the presidency when he avoided accountability under the law, you know, in criminal investigations. He was he was criminally investigated in 1979 by Ed Corman, who was then the Brooklyn federal prosecutor. I should caveat that, and I did not know this, obviously, at the time, um, but uh, Ed Corman performed my wedding ceremony. Um, and then I found out in the last couple of years that he had played this role in investigating Trump. It was a, a quick six-month investigation with a looming statute of limita- uh, limitations approaching on, on fraud, and it related to how Trump had acquired a parcel of land in Manhattan. Case didn't go anywhere. It became sort of a template for Trump in terms of you know schmoozing and dealing, and him believing. And I don't think this is why, but he believed that you know he had he had escaped this by dint of his charm and his ability to talk to investigators. And he made a habit of collecting prosecutors over the years. But the reality is that um, in terms of just, you know, associations, but the reality is that other than, you know, a 2013 investigation by Cy Vance, Al Bragg's, uh, Alvin Bragg's predecessor, into a deal that Trump's children were involved with in Soho, there haven't been a ton of criminal investigations related to Trump. Most of most of his legal issues have been civil. And, you know, they really became criminal when he became president. And or at least I would say actually even in the 2016 campaign when there was this counterintelligence investigation that was opened. Uh, And so when he was president, that was never there was never going to be an indictment of a sitting president. So he's he's avoided it, you know, I think just by virtue of sort of either people not looking for something or because whatever he was doing, you know, did not merit an investigation or, you know, on and on and on. But I think that the sort of the threat of being investigated, the threat of people, the government coming for you has always loomed very large for him. And that's why I believe he was afraid of this. And I think it's, it's you know, most importantly, it's out of his control. And he is someone who so prizes control in everything he does that I think that it's uh, hard to ignore. Well, it's not quite out of his control. The thing I was going to ask you is, you know, has it ever occurred to Donald Trump over the course of years and decades? that one way to avoid scrutiny is not to do shady stuff. <laughs> I mean, look, I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, right. you can make the argument that you're a certain kind of person. I don't believe this to be true. And you'll attract attention because of politics or whatever. But, you know, when you engage in certain kinds of behavior, like calling up, you know, the president of Ukraine and engaging in extortion or fomenting violence at the Capitol or taking classified documents and not returning them, or lying about a retainer to, you know, all these things were totally in his control. How does he think about that? Do you know? Uh, he doesn't think about that uh, as something that was his responsibility. You know, he he should be allowed to do what he wants and uh, people coming for him are the threat. I mean, this is somebody who has behaved throughout his existence as if 
systems and rules should not apply to him. And that was certainly true in the presidency. That's sort of what you're talking about in terms of that uh, phone call to uh, the Ukrainian president, Zelensky. And so, you know, I, I think the way he thinks about this is, can you believe this is happening to me? Yeah. If that makes sense. Victim. Victim, yeah. victim, victim. Yeah. How does he think about his lawyers? I mean, famously, people have <laughs> talked about it. So that's super interesting to me as, as a lawyer and, you know, been on both sides of this. Famously, he had Roy Cohn as his lawyer. You've mentioned another lawyer who he's angry at, Michael Cohen, uh, who was his right-hand man, helped him facilitate the payments to Stormy Daniels, which are at the center of the charges, obviously, against Michael Cohen, and now also at the center of the charges against Donald Trump. He's had other lawyers who've gotten in trouble, including Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, who have had sanct- been sanctioned by the court. Uh, most recently, he added a lawyer who used to work for me, who's a very good and smart attorney, Todd Blanche. Talk a little bit about how he thinks about lawyers and how his feelings about lawyers and his selection of lawyers has evolved, if at all, over time. Sure. My colleague Jonathan Swan and I just actually wrote a story about this uh, that ran over the weekend uh, about Trump and lawyers. And, you know, he has spent decades trying to have people serve in the model of Roy Cohn, who was his first, you know, real fixer lawyer. And, uh, you know, everyone else has, has been some some semblance of that. Obviously, nobody was Roy Cohn uh, for a variety of reasons, one of which is that Roy Cohn is very smart. Um, but Roy Cohn himself was indicted. Wait, so. and, you're saying, and you're saying that's different from- I'm saying that not everybody, not, not, not for all of his lawyers, <laughs> to be clear. Um, but there are certainly members of his team, you know, over the years who have not been, um, uh, not been Clarence Darrow. Um, he, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, Roy Cohn also was in legal trouble himself repeatedly, um, and, and acquitted or ended in a mistrial on the four indictments. Ultimately, he was disbarred. Uh, not long before his death. But, uh, you know, that that is what Trump seeks. Trump likes lawyers who who generally will will do anything. And he has been looking for that as, as you know, as long as history goes back with him. Todd Blanche is a, is a bit of a different fit. Um, you know, Todd Blanche yeah, came. He's to, actually smart and competent. Yeah, he's a he's a he's a he's a good lawyer. He's a solid lawyer. Um, and there are other solid lawyers around Trump right now. Chris Kyes from Florida is a solid Lawyer. Um, there, there, there are other people who, you know, Susan Necklace, who uh, has worked with the Trump Organization for a while, Alan Futerfass, who was part of the Trump Organization trial. These, are, these are these are real lawyers. Um, but then he has a bunch of people who he likes to see go on television. And it's not that they're not real lawyers, but they are people who he likes to see in a certain casting role. Um, and that is one of the questions that he tends to ask people, which is, you know, we, you know, we go on TV. You know, can you go on TV? Can you fight? Can you do this? Right. Can you do that? Like and, Joe Tacopina, for example. Yeah. So, jo- so Joe Tacopina, um, it's funny. Joe, Tacop- Joe Tacopina has been around New York legal circles for a very, very long time. I first met Joe in 2000 when he was representing one of the cops um, in the second trial related to the Abner Louima police brutality case when I was covering Brooklyn Federal Court. And so Joe has been a, you know, very combative legal presence for a very long time. Some of his appearances on television have been pretty criticized by other members of Trump's team who felt that those those appearances were unhelpful. But Trump really liked him because he was fighting. And so that is what Trump really values. Trump had this line to me when I when I interviewed him for my book on him uh, in one of three interviews. This was the first one in March of, of 2021. I asked him other than Roy Cohn, who had been, you know, who, who were who were good lawyers for him. 
And the only other person he mentioned was Jay Goldberg, who had represented him in uh, in his divorce uh, with Ivana Trump. I believe Jay Goldberg has passed away since. But he talked about, you know, he was quick on his feet. He was a great Harvard student. He was quick on his feet. So on his quick on his feet. So right there are the two credentials. One is, you know, a marquee law school, and one is quick on his feet, whatever that means. And then Trump went on to say, you know, a lot of these. I'm paraphrasing, but it was a lot of these lawyers. You know, they choke when the press calls, when you call, you know, when the press calls, they just, they choke. And, and that really is how he sees this. It's all sort of how you handle him in public representation as opposed to legal representation. So do you, do you have any inside scoop about the Todd Blanche appointment? Uh, well, Todd Blanche also represents, uh, Trump's, uh, one of Trump's in-house counsels, Boris Epstein. And, uh, uh, Boris Epstein played a role in Blanche getting hired uh, Trump, I'm told, also uh, sought the view of Paul Manafort, who was, uh, you know, I, I think his name is probably pretty familiar to your listeners, but he was the uh, the campaign chairman in 2016. He became ensnared in the uh, Mueller probe into possible ties between the campaign and Russian officials. Uh, he did serve jail, jail time other than Michael Cohen. I think he's really the only one who did. Um, and Trump ultimately pardoned him, but Blanche represented Manafort in a New York case, uh, related to Manafort and, and that case was dismissed. And so I, I believe that Manafort talked him up to Trump as well. Do you think that the strategy for Trump, legal and otherwise, but mostly I'm talking about legal strategy, is what I think you've written before, attack the prosecutors and delay as much as possible? And given the timetable of the election, how do you think they're thinking about timing of a, of a trial? It's a really good question. So what came up in the court hearing during the arraignment was that, you know, Trump's earliest return date, I believe, is going to be December. Yeah, uh, the pretty far away. It's pretty far away. And then the prosecutors were talking about a very quick trial start after that in January. I think Trump's lawyers wanted to push it back. I, I believe it was as far back as September of 2024, um, which obviously would get it to be, you know, right before the general election that all assumes that Trump is the nominee, which the polls at the moment certainly indicate is the likeliest, although it's a poll in April, so who knows, um, but April of the out year. Um, Chris Kai is one of Trump's lawyers who I mentioned, who's not, you know, a, an attorney of record on the, on the, the case uh, involving Alvin Bragg, but Trump's various lawyers all have some level of visibility into various cases. And Kai's had suggested to me that you know, speed would actually, and transparency are actually Trump's friends in this case because he believes the facts are generally on Trump's side. But so far, I've seen no indication that Trump's lawyers are going to do anything other than take as long as possible. But does he want, it's a sort of political and legal judgment, do you think he wants the trial to be pending at the time of the election or to have been completed by the time of the election? There's a little risk in that, no? Uh, there, There is a little risk in that. Um, I, I think that his habit is just to delay as long as possible. And I don't think that he's looking at, you know, a weighty calculation of, of exactly what days might look like. I think he just wants to push it back as long as he can. Yeah, do you think the lawyers have a sense or some consensus about how weak or strong the charges are? You mentioned one of them just thinks that the facts are on Trump's side. Is that the consensus? That's generally the consensus, yeah. I mean, mo- most of them think that this is a case that they can have a decent amount of luck with on, in pretrial motions. Uh, I'm obviously not a lawyer, so I don't know enough to know if that's true. Um, but I think they think that they can have some luck there. I, I think that they are all aware that Manhattan is not a, a particularly hospitable jury pool 
for Donald Trump. Um, you know, there, there are parts of Manhattan that are more favorable to him than others, but, uh, but it's tough. And what is, what is your expectation with respect to these other three potential criminal cases against him? It's a really good question. So Georgia is the case that Trump in particular has been very worried about, although I would say he's now quite worried about the, the boxes case, the Mar-a-Lago boxes case as well. Georgia, I think, you know, and this I'm just surmising, is nervous making to him because he's on tape. But it was a perfect call. Right. So um, putting that aside, I think that that's I think that's a part of it. The Mar-a-Lago boxes case is a concern to Trump's advisors. They 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 see how aggressively the federal prosecutors and investigators are looking at this. And I think the fact that some of his advisors have made very clear that not only the prosecutors, but at least the previous chief judge overseeing the grand jury, Beryl Howell, who has since left that post and has been replaced by Judge Boasberg. But Howell, they believed in in her rulings, made pretty plain she considers what, you know, what one advisor said to me is that Trump is a criminal. And so I, I don't think they feel great about that case. They don't feel emboldened over time with respect to the documents case when it was discovered that Biden had classified documents and Pence had classified documents. They felt great about that. <laughs> those were those were those were those were very useful headlines. Those were for the them. days. Those, those were, were the right. That was days. that was heady. Um, those were those were great moments for them. But those are those are hard to sustain when there are still a bunch of other you know legal facts. So um, they felt great about what that meant as they were. I mean, one of the things, and pre, I I think we talked about this the last time I was here. Although as you pointed out, it was much longer ago than I realized. Trump. Part of his MO is always to conflate PR issues with legal issues. And so the fact that Biden had boxes of documents or what any boxes of documents, he had some documents, Pence had some documents. Um, I, I think it was a, a, a very, very small fraction of how many Trump had. But that became a discussion of, look, everyone does it. Everyone has it. It's a way to just sort of muddy the waters. Muddying the waters doesn't really work with prosecutors. It works in public. It can work with a judge, maybe. I can speak but, from experience. Yeah. And so I, I think there's the, you know, there's the, there. He, Trump is increasingly experiencing a, a schism between his PR efforts and his legal efforts in a way that he really rarely has. I'll be right back with Maggie Haberman after this. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. 
If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. You said something early on when we were talking about the political consequences of this indictment and how it's been probably a positive. He's raised a bunch of money. He seems to have separated himself in the polls, at least in recent days, from Ron DeSantis a bit more. But you said, well, a lot of this depends on what other cases drop. Let's say Georgia brings a case and the documents case is brought by the Department of Justice. Let's put aside January 6th for a moment. Based on your coverage of many elections and the arc of Donald Trump's career, is that going to further galvanize his base or will they fray? We don't know. I'm I'm loath to predict for many reasons, one of which is just that generally I'm loath to predict. But, you know, I, I think that it was the Trump folks you asked how they feel do see it as something of a gift that the Manhattan DA case went first because they think that it is the most trivial of the cases. They like to say weak. I don't actually think it is a weak case. I think that if you read that statement of fact that went with the indictment, the question is whether people think that it should have been brought. I think that they have seen a way to get political upside out of it and to try to use it to tarnish whatever else might come as political. But I think that at a certain point, if you're talking about multiple indictments in different jurisdictions, I think that's a lot of freight. You know, right now, Trump is doing you know, well enough in the Republican primary, in part because the majority of Republican primary voters are not voting on electability, which is really the DeSantis argument is electability. Uh, I don't know if that starts to get shipped away if there's additional indictments. You mentioned earlier that Trump sat down with you for three interviews when you were doing your book. Why does Trump sit down with, with you? No <laughs> offense. Why does, why does he sit down with Bob Woodward? Why does he sit down with people who are going to write books that are not going to be so flattering? Because he cannot help himself. Um, and in both cases, it's sort of the same thing with me. It's really about the New York Times and his obsession with the Times and with Woodward. It's because Woodward is, a, is an iconic, legendary name. So that's as simple as that. And, and because he, he is utterly convinced, Preet, of his own ability to spin you. Um, you know, I remember asking an aide in 2017 after he had been ripping me about something in public, you know, and he, and then he sat down for an interview with me and I said, why is he doing this? And they said, he wants to see if he can get a good story. And it really is. I mean, it's as simple as that. Hope it, springs eternal. It, it's more, it's uh, not even hope springs eternal. It's more sort of, I'm so talented at being able to spin people that I'll bet I can do it this time. Right. <laughs> Has he ever thought about representing himself in court? Uh, I, I, he tells his lawyers that he's the best and that he could do it better than they can. I mean, remember, part of his whole thing is telling people that he understands everything better than they do. Yes. He's an expert and a stable genius, as he has said himself. You wrote last November that Ronald Lauder was no longer backing his friend of decades, Donald Trump. Yes. So we, we talk about his base a lot. What about the donor class and do they matter? You know, I think, Preet, they matter less than they ever did, if I'm being honest. Um you know, and I think that we we lose sight of how uh, I'll get back to your donor question in a second. But something happened over the weekend where Trump in his first post indictment event went to a UFC, uh, whatever you call it, fight. I don't I, these are not my it's not my it's not my area. But um, this was in Miami on, I think, 
Friday night, not Saturday night. And maybe it was Saturday night. Anyway, he went to this, um, he went to this event and he apparently was greeted like a, like a hero. Um, and the, the crowd reacted in a really electric way. And the thing that, the reason that matters is uh, it, it is a, a bit of a measurable quantity of celebrity that no one else in the Republican field has and that he has because he was a celebrity for decades. Uh, but he was more than, he was more than just a celebrity. He was a celebrity who connected with a certain section of, of voters in the country on sort of this shared cultural basis. And so he has a durable level of support that I think people do keep underestimating. Uh, there is a, a certain amount of the Republican base that's going to be with him. And it's more than 25% at this point that's going to be with him, I think, no matter what. And so I, I do think that that's really important. Um, that for, for, for that with somebody who's got a hundred percent name ID about whom everyone in the country has an opinion. I mean, literally everyone donor money makes less of an issue unless that donor money is being put toward negative ads to define an opponent. And that's what Trump has his super PAC for. Now, I don't know what the super PAC has raised. DeSantis's, uh, uh, team told me in a story we did last week that they had raised $30 million, uh, in the course of just a couple of weeks since, since they launched. And that's a huge amount of money. It seems pretty clear to me that Trump's amount of money is not that, but it, I don't know that it has to be that, you know, I think Trump has never been the favorite of the donor class. Uh, he certainly wasn't in 2016. He only was by, def by dint of being president for the four years after that, that most of these people who supported Trump, uh, you know, among Republican donor class would never have been with him. Had, if it's possible, yeah. I think he has 102% name recognition. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm doing the math correctly, I, going I think say, it's at 102%. Yes, I think I, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm 100% sure that he has 102% name ID. <laughs> yes. So I just don't think that the, I don't think the money matters the same way with him. Yeah, no, that's probably true for the first time in a big race yeah, like this. I think that's right. And the other thing, we, we talk about the effect politically on Trump and how he has to campaign and garner support after the indictment. But the, the other half of the equation is the quandary that all of his opponents are in because they also have to, all, all of them, have to attack the DA and attack the indictment also. Yep. Which is, which is how much of a pickle is that for them? Well, all you have to do is look at how, how DeSantis handled it, which was, you know, so Trump, you asked me about what is, why is it, why is Trump afraid on an arrest? And I said, it's because he's not in control. If you think about how much control is incredibly important to Trump, just look at what he did that Saturday morning where he posted on Truth Social that he was going to be arrested on Tuesday, which was absolutely not true. He was trying um, to control his arrest. He was trying to control he was trying to control everything. He was trying to control, you know, the news cycle. He was trying to control a Republican sudden response. Um, and by the way, it worked. So DeSantis came under two days of pressure from Trump allies and Trump's own campaign to say something. He finally spoke at an event in Panama City that Monday. And he was very dismissive of Alvin Bragg, which is not a leap for him because he's been dismissing, you know, uh, liberal prosecutors for a very long time. Alvin Bragg is, is a liberal prosecutor. And then he said, and this was a twist of the knife at Trump. He said it twice. I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to, to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. I just, I can't speak to that. That was a dig at Trump's character. Yes, it and was. it did not, it was not received well, <laughs> Preet, in, um, in Trump land. And, uh, 
so that it was taken note of around Trump that when the indictment did happen, DeSantis put out a tweet, you know, within, I think, an hour. And he didn't name Trump, but he called the indictment un-American, said Florida would not be part of any extradition, which wasn't even under discussion at that point. It was pretty telling about the the heat that he had felt. I find it hard to get over where we are and how politics has been turned on its head. And this may be a good thing. I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing that people care less about personal uh, issues. But the idea that in a campaign for the presidency or, or for any other office for that matter, usually it would be the case that opponents would feel like they were handed a gift. Yes. If one of their rivals was not only indicted by you know a credible prosecutor's office, but also that at the heart of that indictment, whether you like the criminal case or not, is something as tawdry as, as what it is. That used to be career ending. And now you and I are discussing how that's helpful to Trump politically. It is. How'd that, hap- how'd that happen? Well, because politics has become redefined by who you hate and who hates you back. And so what matters is not what you did. What matters is who doesn't like what you did, if that makes any sense. I think I think it makes a lot of sense. You put that on a T-shirt. I put it in a book. It's, um, it's if people want to buy the book, <laughs> people want to buy the book. It was called Confidence Man. Um, but uh, but but in That's all seriousness, it's a short book. It's a, yeah, very funny. Um, I uh, I but I did I did get into that in the book that you know this is I did a story in 2014 when I was still at Politico about <clears throat> how many races that cycle had been marked by people who got elected who had underwater approval ratings. And the, the volume of people elected with that state of affairs had been really surprising to pollsters because it used to be, as you know, you needed to be at 50 or higher and in your approval rating. And it, it was becoming the case that the waterline was just getting lower and lower because voters just felt so gross about politicians in general and expected yeah. sort of bad behavior from candidates that they no longer punished them the same way. And I think that's a lot of it. It's not completely new. Somebody I heard a couple of years ago draw the analogy to the support for O.J. Simpson. Hmm. Obviously, very different situation, very different alleged crime and everything else. But, you know, the people who are supporting O.J. Simpson, even if they thought maybe he he did the deed and killed his wife, further to what you were saying a second ago, he had the right enemy. Yep. And that enemy was the LAPD. Yes. That had been shown to be, in many ways, racist and oppressive towards the black community. Yes. And that's all that mattered. So, that, and that's thirty years ago. That's it's a good. It's ago. a good. That's actually a very good analogy. It, it, it's yeah. That was thirty years ago, and I think that that was the sort of uh, that was a strain that has now become, you know, sort of more broadly about politics in general and about culture in general. Are there particular people or one person among his rivals that the Trump team is concerned about in twenty twenty four? They are laser focused on Ron DeSantis. And and as they should be or no? Uh, yeah. I mean, if you look at the polls, Ron DeSantis is the closest to him. I think that Ron DeSantis has, has uh, shown the most potential for growth. And I think that he's, you know, well, we just discussed how much money is less significant with Trump. He's still got a, he's got a ton of money, so you can't ignore him. Um, and I think that you've seen an investment in DeSantis from some Republicans that you really never saw with any of Trump's rivals in 2015 or 2016 because they didn't take it as seriously then. So is, I, is there someone else that they're worried could sneak by like Nikki Haley or someone else? Or uh, I think that they worry a bit about Tim Scott. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I really think that that's, I think that's basically it. And I frankly think that they're hopeful that Tim Scott will end up drawing from DeSantis. And how does the DeSantis Trump fight 
unfold. Trump makes fun of him. Trump <laughs> calls him names. I can't believe you say that. That does not sound like the Donald Trump I know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, he already is. He's 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 calling it more than calling him names. He's calling him. He's he's, you know, accusing him of misconduct with students when he was a teenager, when he was a teacher. He's you know, he he he, he insinuated he might be gay. I mean, he's he's really we're so seeing, what is DeSantis, at some point. When are we going to see DeSantis throw a punch? So I've asked this question of people around DeSantis um, a lot. And the response that I get is you're really not going to see that. But that's, you know, that's just not the fight he's planning on having. He doesn't want to let Trump set the terms of engagement. While it's clear to me that he has had trouble figuring out how to tackle certain things about Trump, I do think that DeSantis is not intimidated by Trump. And that that's unusual that we've not seen that. Interesting. Yeah. Now, that may change. But right now, I don't think he is. What does that mean, not intimidated? Meaning he thinks he can win or he's just not going to get bullied? He definitely thinks that he can win and that he's he's not going to get bullied and that, you know, the sort of the character attacks aren't scaring him off. Do you think he's learned the lesson, if we can remind people? Um, Ted Cruz? It will cause you to... No, I was going to oh. say Marco Rubio. Mm. Marco Rubio was the uplifting, inspiring Republican candidate. I, If, you know, if you want to ask who I thought was going to be the Republican nominee back in 2015, 2016... I thought it was going to be Rubio. I thought Rubio had a lot of attractive qualities that independents would like. He was from Florida um, and he was hopeful uh, and, you know, telegenic and all of that. This was before he had to drink a lot of water when he gave the Republican response to the State of the Union. But so Trump starts attacking him. And then I'll never forget this rally where Marco Rubio gets up on the stage and he decides he's going to be Trump and made fun of Trump's hand, uh, his hand size, his among, hand other, size. among other things. Yeah. He's always calling me little Marco. And I'll admit, the guy, he's taller than me, he's like 6'2", which is why I don't understand why his hands are the size of someone who's 5'2". Have you seen his hands? And you know what they say about men with small hands? You can't trust them. You can't trust them. And it, you know, it didn't work. Nope. It didn't work. And it's not going to work for DeSantis either. So in some ways... Trump has a, you know, I hate to say he has a Trump card because he can do that and the other people can't. There's no question that, I mean, one of the, one of Trump's hallmarks has always been and calling cards has always been that he can get away with things that other people can't and that, and that he can behave in certain ways that only work for him. And then when other people try, it doesn't. It's not even, it's not even a moral issue. It's not like, no, it's it's just not effective. It just doesn't, no, it just doesn't, it just doesn't succeed. That's correct. And so it's like if Trump, if Trump's calling card was juggling, you know, bowling pins, (laughs) And he was really good at juggling ball. And he was the best bowling pin juggler. And DeSantis or Rubio or Ted Cruz or whoever the opponent is thought, well, voters really like juggling. I'm going to juggle, but you can't juggle as well. Right. It's making it worse. And so they always struggle for a lane. So what's the lane that defeats Trump, if any? Well, the, here's the thing. The, the lane that defeats Trump is the lane where voters suddenly decide that the conduct bothers them. Right. Because, I mean, if you look at DeSantis and Trump, they're not especially different on policy. Um, you know, DeSantis has been trying to get to the right of Trump on a, a number of fronts. There is, there has been a belief um, among Republican strategists for some time now that Trump has certain vulnerabilities on the right. One of them is COVID-related, although I'm really not sure how animating that is in a Republican primary at this point. I think it was a price of entry for DeSantis, but I think it's being overinterpreted as the reason voters are voting. Um, number one, number two is crime. Uh, number three is immigration. And you're seeing DeSantis doing all sorts of work on that right now. Um, and number four is uh, is China and that Trump was, you know, sort of uh, 
praising, not sort of, he was praising of Xi at various points during his presidency, and he was seen as too soft early on in the pandemic, although part of the reason for that was not just that he wanted to preserve his trade deal with China, but part of it was also that the, the U.S. was reliant on China for certain medical shipments. And so uh, there, there was it was a complicated rationale, but nonetheless, it all adds up to a, a sense of perceived weakness on the right. I think DeSantis has been hoping to exploit that, but generally speaking, their policies are not particularly different. And, you know, what ends up happening is where they are different, though, Preet, is, for instance, I don't think you're going to hear Trump support a six-week abortion ban. I think you'll try to hear him be as nonspecific as possible. But privately, and I reported this last year, he was telling people that that the the end of Roe v. Wade was bad for Republicans. You're seeing Trump's super PAC hit DeSantis really hard on his votes related to Medicare and um, Social Security when he was a Congress member. And so you're going to see sort of a, a typical politicianing of Ron DeSantis in that way. But in general... What the lane for DeSantis is, you know, hoping that people want Trump, you know, without the drama. And the drama is not only priced in, but for a bunch of people, it's part of the appeal. So let's say it's Biden versus Trump in the general election with maybe a trial concluded or trials pending. Putting that aside, you know, the the indictment issue, how is the 2024 general election going to look different from the 2020 general election? So that's a great question that I've been thinking a lot about in the last two weeks, ever since a story by Alex Thompson and Axios about how Biden might push his his campaign announcement off to the summer. And there's a number of Democrats who I've talked to who have been kind of hand-wringing about it, which is, you know, does this mean that Biden's not going to get in? If he doesn't get in, it's so late for everybody to form their own campaign. I have no reason to believe that Biden's not running, so let me just put that out there. And if you accept that, which I do, I accept he is running, part of how he can recreate the conditions of 2020, which really were Biden barely visible and Trump sort of hanging himself on a daily basis um, and blowing himself up on a daily basis, you're seeing some of that right now, right? Biden's trying to step back, do presidential work, does not feel an overweening need to be in headlines every single day and is letting Trump get massive press attention, you know, despite this belief that all press attention is great for Trump, in a general election, it's not. And so, you know, getting headlines for getting indicted is not actually a winning argument with independents uh, or suburban moderates. So so that's Biden. That's Biden. What's what's Trump going to do different? Nothing. It'll be more, more cowbell. I mean, really, I think you will just see a, a really savagely run campaign. That's all. So now I want to do this hypothetical, which doesn't please me. Trump wins the presidency and he's not in prison. How does the Trump two term in office compare to Trump one? Uh, I wrote a story about this a couple of weeks ago. It will be, you know, it was, I wrote it with, uh, I think my colleague Shane Goldmacher after Trump's speech at CPAC, where he described himself as your retribution. Uh, it will be, you know, I think a yeah. term largely of spite. It will be, you know, it will be finishing certain things that didn't get dealt with, but those things are tend to be less policy and more personnel related. It'll be making sure he gets in people who will do what he wants and doing what he wants. Yeah, I mean, who's the attorney general going to well, be? Well, I mean, it's a great question. I it's certainly not going to be Bill Barr again, you know, so I don't know. Uh, it's certainly not going to be Jeff Sessions again. Um, Jeff Clark? But it's a great, <laughs> it's a great question of who could even get confirmed, right? I mean, he'll have a much easier time staffing a White House for with political appointments than he will having to get Senate confirmed cabinet posts. 
And it, and it depends on what happens with the Senate. Is the well, I was going to say, a universe in which Trump wins the presidency seems to be a universe in which the Republicans win back the Senate. I think no? that that is correct. I think that So you could correct. have a Trump too, spiteful, vengeful, policy of retribution, in his own words, in January 2025. Yes. Where he has the presidency, the House, and the Senate. Yep. Yep. That was a moment of silence. I mean, yes, you could have. <laughs> I do, yes, I was doing a moment of silence. Yes, you could have. You could have all of. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt it. You could. You can have all of that. I mean, this is. I think that, uh, and you can also not have that, Preet. Right? I mean, I think there is a reason to look at the last three cycles, twenty two, twenty eighteen, and look at diminishing returns for Republicans across the board. Do you have a particular role, as far as your beat goes? In the twenty twenty four election, twenty twenty four primaries in general, do you want to cover DeSantis? Do you want to cover Trump? Do you not want to cover Trump? Well, it'll be up to my bosses what I do, but I, I will be. Yeah, but I, what's your? Pro- well, you can tell them right now I through the power of the podcast. Of you. I appreciate that. I what think, would you like? What would you like to be doing? I, in I, I anticipate that I, if Trump is the nominee, I'll be covering him. If DeSantis is the nominee, I'll be covering him. If Tim Scott's nominee, I'll be covering him. But I will be covering politics generally. You know, one of the questions that I was going to ask you, but we sort of covered a little bit, was whether or not the donor class has Trump fatigue, whether or not, you know, independents have Trump fatigue. What about Maggie Haberman? <laughs> Do you have Trump fatigue? Nobody, a, nobody's, nobody's worried about you. I, I'm worried about you. You know, that's appreciate that. Um, you've known me a long time though. Um, I think that, you know, my father is a, is a journalist as you know, and some of your listeners probably know. And, um, I, I learned a lesson from him, which is that a journalist doesn't leave the story and the story is not over. So, that's how I look at it. You're like in the military. There you go. Or something. It's just what I do. It's your mission. It's, it's, well, it's, I mean, look, I think we're not curing cancer, right? I mean, I don't want to, um, there, there are a lot of people who are working. Are you denigrating the I'm, I'm, free press and I the am First not, Amendment I think, of the thank, United thank, States Constitution? Wow. Okay. Yes. Thank you for that. No. <laughs> um, but, but, uh, but I do think the work we do is important. And uh, and I think that it is important in a democracy and uh, the story is still ongoing. We talked about how Trump might be different in 2024, Biden might be different. How do you think the press corps generally, putting you aside for a moment, will the press corps generally be, I mean, it already is very different from 2016, I think so. certainly. Yeah. And I will think that's different from, from 2020. Uh, well, I mean, I, I don't know how to answer that because 2020 was such a strange year because of COVID, right? I mean, I think we'll be, we'll be covering events. We'll be covering, you know, candidates will be campaigning in ways that they were not in 2020. So I think that's going to be, uh, there will be something to be at, uh, in a, in a way there just wasn't in 2020. But, you know, I think that, look, I think the press is, is really aware of trying to call out. I, I think the press has done a really good job over the last two years in the face of a lot of attacks of calling out lies about the election um, of calling out denialism. And so, and I expect that since I expect the denialism will continue, I expect that will continue too. Is Biden the Democrat and the general that the Trump folks find the most formidable, notwithstanding what they say? I mean, they don't really, else? you know, a, a number of them don't really look that, look that far <laughs> into it in terms of. That reminds me of I, another question I'm going to ask you. In a moment. Okay. I think that they assume that Biden is the nominee and, and, uh, and they like their chances against him, whether they should or shouldn't, they like their chances against him. The question I was reminded of is, I think you say in your book, that the Trump, uh, maybe his team also, but certainly Trump, lives in the eternal now. 
And that's why nobody in the White House did any long-term planning. I guess my question, this is sort of a political science question. How does a person who does nothing but live in the eternal now become as successful as, as he is and become the, the president? Usually it takes planning it, some understanding of object permanence. You know, those, those kinds of things matter. Is it just, again, he had the right enemies? Well, no, I think it was a combination of factors. I think, I think yes, I do think he had the right enemy in the sense that he was running against a very polarizing opponent. Um, you know, I think the, the email hacks that the intelligence community says Russia did uh, helped. I think this was a very close election in 2016. And so there's a million factors when it's a close election. Um, but I also think that part of it is, A, uh, you know, he gets dinged a lot you know, with reason for, for his work ethic, but he actually outworked Clinton, um, in, in 2016. And he actually seemed to be enjoying himself, which I am hard pressed to point to many points when he really has in the last two years, you know, especially as he's been doing these events in the last couple of months. And this goes back to my point about his durable support, you know, going back decades as being a celebrity, people felt really bonded to him and believed that he was this uber wealthy guy. He's he, to be clear, pre, he's wealthier than 99% of the country. Um, so as much as the conversation is about that, he's not really that rich. He's a lot richer than most of us, you know, even if he's not as rich as he says he is, but whatever was said about him and his business practices, people didn't believe it because they had watched the apprentice or they had read the art of the deal. And so he had just been branded as this, as this success story for so long that it was an impenetrable artifice. And I think that was a big part of it too. Maggie Haberman, the book, I'll remind people, because it's still very relevant, Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump, and The Breaking of America. Thanks for being on the show again. Thank you for having me. My conversation with Maggie Haberman continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. We discuss the value she still sees in using Twitter for her reporting. You know, even in its currently sort of distorted form, it is still a real tool in terms of promoting your reporting, in terms of seeing other people's reporting, in terms of seeing what information is coming out. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. In our current moment of global anxiety, an ongoing war in Europe, rising tensions among world powers, it can be easy to feel cynical about the power of diplomacy. But I wanted to end the show this week by remembering a time when diplomacy worked, when peace was brokered and bloodshed ended. On Tuesday, President Biden and former President Clinton traveled to Belfast in Northern Ireland to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. That's the peace accord that put an end to the so-called Troubles, the 30-year period of sectarian violence that ravaged Northern Ireland and also brought death and destruction to cities like Dublin and London. The epicenter of the conflict was Belfast, a city that was divided between communities of largely Protestant Unionists who wanted Northern Ireland to remain with the UK and the mostly Catholic Nationalists who wanted to join with the Republic of Ireland. Neighbors became enemies and neighborhoods became battlefields. Bombings were commonplace. People's children were abducted and murdered. 
All told throughout the course of the Troubles, an estimated 3,600 people died. In 1998, with the United States playing a central role, UK Prime Minister Tony Blair and Irish Taoiseach Bertie Ahern came to the negotiating table, and they set up a power-sharing arrangement that gave both sides representation. The warring factions disarmed in favor of a democratic process. The deal also created an open border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Now, a generation later, things aren't perfect. Tensions remain, and schools and neighborhoods in Northern Ireland are still largely segregated. The fallout from Brexit has introduced a new series of debates over borders and trade. But the deal brokered in 1998 effectively put an end to the political violence. And in the decades since, the peace has, for the most part, held. That's no small thing. The Good Friday Agreement is a lesson that opposing factions, even those made up of people who view the other side as terrorists, can come together to forge agreement and to save lives. What a powerful reminder for our current moment. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Maggie Haberman. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.